Welcome to Seminars at Steamboat, lectures on important public policy issues from Steamboat Springs, Colorado. The following seminar features Eric Edelman delivering a lecture called Prospects for U.S. National Security, Defense Strategy, and Policy. Eric Edelman is the former U.S. Ambassador to the Republics of Finland and Turkey during the Clinton and Bush administrations and is currently Practitioner-in-Residence at the Philip Merrill Center for Strategic Studies at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. This seminar was recorded on August 16th, 2021. It's my pleasure to welcome Ambassador Eric Edelman to the seminars tonight. Eric retired as a career minister from the United States Foreign Service in 2009. He is currently practitioner in residence at the Philip Merrill Center for Strategic Studies at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, a counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a senior fellow at the Miller Center for Public Affairs at the University of Virginia, and a board member, a member of the board of directors of the United States Institute of Peace. Ambassador Edelman co-chaired the National Defense Strategy Commission in 2017 and 2018. Congress empowered the commission in law and Eric, along with retired Admiral and Chief Naval Officer Gary Ruffhead, led a panel of a dozen accomplished national security thought leaders through a systematic review of the nation's defense strategy. It was a powerful report from a bipartisan group and it helped reshape a series of debates that continue today. While in the Foreign Service, Ambassador Edelman served as U.S. Ambassador to both the Republic of Finland and the Republic of Turkey in the Clinton and Bush administrations, respectively, and was Principal Deputy Assistant to the Vice President for National Security Affairs. In other assignments, he has been Chief of Staff to the Deputy Secretary of State, Special Assistant to the Secretary of State, George Schultz, and he served in the State Department's Operations Center and the embassies in Prague, Moscow, and Tel Aviv where he was a member of the U.S. Middle East delegation to the West Bank, Gaza, West Bank and Gaza autonomy talks. I had the great pleasure to work alongside Eric in the Pentagon when he served as Undersecretary of Defense for Policy from 2005 to 2009. Eric holds a bachelor's degree from Cornell University and a PhD in diplomatic history from Yale. Several weeks ago, James Bruce spoke to seminars in a presentation entitled the foreign intelligence threat to the US, Russia, China, and other bad actors. Dr. Bruce provided a high-level review of the current and evolving threats to the United States and its interests. With the threat as a background, the question then becomes, what does the nation do to advance its interests? That is Eric's challenge tonight. As Joella noted during Eric's talk, if you have a question that comes to mind, please provide it in the chat box at the bottom of the screen, and I will use them during the Q&A process. Eric, thank you for joining us to take us through the prospects for US national security, defense strategy and policy. The screen is yours. Well, thank you very much, Ken, for that very generous introduction. I have to say it was an incredible pleasure on my part to be Ken's colleague and his sort of counterpart on the policy side of the House and the, and the Pentagon uh, back in, in the Bush 43 administration. Uh, and thanks to Joella as well and, and to um, seminars at Steamboat to, for inviting me tonight. And thanks to everybody for tuning in because I think it's an important subject and I appreciate everybody's uh, time. I am gonna make some observations about the process of how we think about uh, national defense strategy, how we arrive at it, the specific challenges we face today. Um, 
and I will be basing it a lot on the experience that I had with Admiral Roughhead in, in chairing the National Defense Strategy Commission report, which you can find online um, at the U.S. Institute of Peace website. Um, I think that report, uh, although it's already three years old, uh, remains uh, quite current today. And I know, for instance, ranking member Inhofe uh, used it uh, during the course of the Senate Arms uh, Services Committee markup of the National Defense Authorization Act and the Biden defense budget, um, uh, which I will mention uh, later in my remarks. But it would be, I think, very difficult uh, to embark on this topic without addressing um, uh, the events of the last week that, that Joella adverted to in her uh, introductory remarks. Uh, what's happened in Afghanistan uh, over the last week and the uh, U.S. withdrawal clearly are going to have major is going to have major impact on the prospects for U.S. national defense strategy. I'll make a few observations at the top of uh, of this um, session, um, and uh, probably advert to it as well uh, during the course of my remarks. But I'm also happy to engage with folks uh, who want to talk more about it in detail or drill down uh, in the Q and A session. So my first observation would be that no matter how much one tries to spin this, uh, the debacle that has unfolded over the past week is going to be an enormous blow to U.S. Uh, standing in the world and the prospects for at least alliance relationships in any national defense strategy going forward. Um, and you can see that reflected uh, in the pages of the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, um, the New York Times, and other, um, other major news publications that are taking soundings in capitals around the world. Second observation I would make is that although the president's decision um, to withdraw from Af Afghanistan was justified, at least in part, by uh, the need to refocus on the challenge presented to us by the People's Republic of China, the sort of shambolic exit from Kabul is both going to embolden China and uh, jihadists worldwide. And that's going to heighten the cost of deterring uh, the former and will increase the likelihood that we will have to divert more resources uh, to fighting uh, the latter. Um, on the China side, I would just note that uh, China Global Times, which is a uh, propaganda outlet of the uh, communist regime in China, in the last two days has had um, successive editorials, one about Hong Kong and one about Taiwan, that has warned the residents of Hong Kong and Taiwan that they can't count on the United States uh, to support them if they get into a conflict with the People's Republic. And I think that's just a foretaste of what's to come. The third observation I would make is that because our commitments overseas are much less divisible in different parts of the world than people sometimes think, this administration has really set back the the um, this uh, event has set back the Biden administration's effort to assert that America is back and willing to step into a leadership position around the world, and and you can see that as well being questioned by uh, various um, political figures around the world. My fourth observation is that how we do security assistance with our partners around the world is been thrown into relief in the collapse of the Afghan army. 
there'll be many, many postmortems of why the Afghan army failed. Um, the idea that the Afghan army didn't want to fight, I think, is not credible in light of the 50,000 plus casualties they've taken in combat over the last uh, five or six years when they have been in the lead of the combat operations. But I, I do think what um, will emerge at least as one of the reasons for the failure, among others, is that we've trained the Afghan army to fight the way we do, to rely on overwhelming information dominance, uh, awesome air power, contract logistical support uh, to keep aircraft, both rotary and fixed wing in the air and vehicles moving on the road, uh, as well as the kind of unique uh, mission planning capabilities that we bring. Um, and when we pulled them out uh, of the equation, uh, it, it, I think, sapped the will of Afghans to fight um, and uh, made the um, debacle that uh, we've seen unfold all the more likely. Um, I would note as well that this is not a new problem. Um, my predecessor many times removed as Undersecretary of Defense, uh, Blowtorch Bob Comer, uh, wrote a, a famous study for RAND uh, back in the 1970s called Bureaucracy Does Its Thing, in, in which he reproved the US military for having done precisely the same thing with the Army of the Republic of Vietnam in, in the 1970s. So this unfortunately is a recurrent pattern about how we provide security assistance. And it's one of the issues I think people are gonna to have to take a look at uh, very uh, seriously. And then my, my final observation about the potential impact of Afghanistan on national defense strategy is that uh, however bad this uh, is, and I think it's quite bad, uh, the United States can recover. I mean, after all, uh, we did recover from the withdrawal from Vietnam in 1975 to which the Afghan withdrawal is now sadly being compared, but we shouldn't underestimate the cost of recovery. If you think back to 1975, and then think back to what came in the national security arena in the immediate years afterwards, the Mayaguez affair, the um, advent of Cuban adventurism in, in Africa, the Nicaraguan revolution, uh, and the rise of the Sandinistas, the Iranian revolution and the hostage taking um, and the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. A lot of bad things followed from the US failure and the perception of defeat in Vietnam. And I think we, uh, we need to be on the alert for similar kinds of, of uh, dangerous uh, trends developing uh, in the next several years. But recovery is possible. I guess that's the silver lining in what otherwise is a very cloudy, cloudy picture. So with those observations, let me talk, uh, let me turn to defense strategy, uh, you know, writ large. And um, for my sins, I not only chaired the 2018 National Defense Panel uh, created by Congress, but I served on its two predecessors, the National Defense Panel of 2014 and the Independent Panel to review the QDR of 2010. And the 2014 National Defense Panel report begins with a very uh, simple sentence about defense strategy. It says, uh, any defense strategy has to start with a very simple question. What is it that you're trying to defend and why? And another way of putting that is, what are the ends of your national security policy? Um, and uh, what is it that you have to 
do to secure them? Those are, of course, the, the means. Um, and how will you employ those means to secure these ends? And, and that is the ways. And this triptych of ends, ways, and means you see repeatedly, uh, I think Ken, Ken and I probably saw it uh, a million times on briefing slides in the Pentagon. And, and while it can be a kind of stultifying, formulaic approach uh, to strategy, it remains crucial uh, in terms of understanding uh, how to build a strategy and what your strategy ought to be. Writing in the midst of World War II, Walter Lippmann, in his book, Foreign Policy, the Shield of the Republic, wrote that national security policy, and now I quote, consists in bringing into balance with a comfortable surplus of power in reserve, the nation's commitments and the nation's power. The constant preoccupation of the true statement statesman is to achieve this, this balance. Lippmann's formulation has sometimes been called the Lippmann test or the solvency test uh, for American national security policy with the idea that uh, just like a budget at home, you have to have your objectives uh, and your, uh, the resources to accomplish them, your, to meet your commitments uh, in, in balance and then, and then you're solvent. Uh, now, if you find yourself out of balance, um, and for reasons I'll explain, I think we are a little bit out of balance now, there are ways to deal with that. Uh, one is you can reduce your commitments. You can say, there are things we will defend and things that we will not. And President Biden, for better or worse, has just made one of those decisions in Afghanistan. We've made decisions like that in the past. Uh, in 1950, uh, Dean Acheson, the Secretary of State, uh, gave a speech about America's national security uh, perimeter in East Asia, and he quite intentionally left Korea out of it. Uh, six months later, um, the North Koreans invaded South Korea with the blessing of Stalin and Mao, and American policymakers decided that even though it hadn't been part of their declared national security objectives, the defense of Korea was important for other reasons, not least of which was to reassure European allies who had just signed the Washington Treaty creating the NATO alliance that the United States was willing to defend places in the world where it found its, its forces. So reducing commitments is one option. The second option, of course, is to increase resources to raise the top line of the defense budget, for instance. Uh, this is something ultimately that um, President Carter began in the late 1970s after some of the events that I mentioned in my earlier remarks in which President Reagan uh, in, uh, continued and increased. Um, and that, that is one way to deal with a, a set of commitments that are out of whack with your resources. And the third is to assume risk. And that, for instance, is what President Eisenhower did when he declared the new look at the end of the Korean War, uh, concerned that the United States was spending too much on defense um, and that it needed to be uh, prepared to have a national defense strategy for, as Eisenhower put it, the long haul. President Eisenhower agreed on a strategy that would cut spending on conventional forces, but rely very heavily on what Secretary of State John Foster Dulles called massive retaliation, the threat of using nuclear weapons to hold the line against America's adversaries. And uh, assuming risk is a potential approach as well. The 19, 
or the 2018 National Defense Strategy, for instance, says that uh, the United States should be prepared to assume more risk in the Middle East in order to um, be able to reprioritize its defense efforts to deal with uh, near-peer challengers like Russia and especially China, which everyone agrees is the pacing threat for national security. Um, the problem that we found on the commission when we examined uh, our colleagues in the Pentagon about this is everybody had a different idea about what risk was. Was it assuming risk in the fight against ISIL in, in Syria and Iraq? Was it assuming risk in Afghanistan? Was it assuming risk in um, in containing Iran? Uh, clearly, right now, we're seeing what can happen when you make a faulty assumption about risk, uh, because I think that's what we see playing out uh, in, in Afghanistan. Um, so what is it that we, in fact, in the United States want to try and uh, defend? What are the core national security interests um, that, that we have? Uh, since World War II, there has been a kind of consensus answer to that. Uh, after the enormous exertions of the First and Second World War, the national security elite in the United States, and by that I mean the senior military officers, politicians, uh, diplomats um, and uh, uh, congressional leaders who were involved in international affairs came to a kind of consensus position that the United States could not allow a foreign power to dominate either Europe or East Asia. So in World War II, obviously, it was Germany and Japan. Uh, but after the Second World War, it quickly became a concern that the Soviet Union might dominate uh, those two places. And over time, the Middle East was added to this mix because of the role it played in uh, European reconstruction and providing the hydrocarbon resources uh, for Europe uh, to rebuild its economy after uh, World War II. And so the consensus position, very much a departure from uh, the previous American uh, reluctance to engage in political commitments abroad and alliances became one that relied on alliances, both a multilateral alliance uh, in, in Europe, NATO, with an integrated military command, a series of bilateral uh, alliances in East Asia, the so-called hub and spoke model, which included uh, a, a bilateral security treaty with Japan, um, after the Korean War with the Republic of Korea, uh, and roughly at the same time with the Republic of China, Taiwan, um, which was abrogated in 1979 uh, when we uh, fully um, normalized our relations with the People's Republic and was replaced by domestic U.S. legislation, the Taiwan Relations Act, which doesn't imply a defense commitment to Taiwan, but does suggest that the U.S. will provide the means for Taiwan to defend itself against forcible incorporation into uh, the People's Republic. So alliances, um, uh, open trading order, uh, uh, basically oriented around the general agreement on uh, trade and tariffs that was reached in the late 1940s, as well as the World Bank and the IMF, all became uh, a, a part of the American national strategy that was based on forward defense 
and the ability to project power into these key regions of the world. And what was all of that meant to accomplish? Well, first, it was meant, first and foremost, to defend the American homeland. Second, it was meant to preserve America's access to sea, to air, to space, and cyberspace, to maintain uh, stability in these key regions so that uh, the United States didn't face uh, so-called salami slicing tactics where one country after another would fall under uh, communist uh, dominion and, and uh, control by uh, Moscow and the Soviet Union, um, promotion of an international order that was favorable to our interests and values. And that is something that has uh, gone back and forth in American politics. There's always a conflict between ideals and interests, but it's founded in something very fundamental to Americans, which is the notion that the founders had, which was echoed by Lincoln, that uh, it would not be possible for democratic self-government, which the founders knew had been very rarely successful in world history, to survive and prosper in a world made up of non-democracies that were hostile to democratic self-government. And then finally, a commitment to global public goods, uh, the willingness to use America's might uh, to deal with disasters worldwide, uh, to deal with uh, global health crises. And of course, we're in the midst of one right now with the COVID uh, pandemic. Um, and, and these kinds of uh, global um, public goods have been a part of the strategy uh, as well. After the Cold War ended uh, in the early 1990s, it seemed relatively cheap to maintain uh, this kind of international order. I mean, we had uh, a number of um, so-called uh, operations other than war, humanitarian interventions, uh, but we also were doing it increasing our operations tempo uh, at a time that we were cutting the defense budget. We were engaged in the so-called procurement bathtub uh, because we were spending money on operations and maintenance, but not investing in, in future military technologies. Um, and so we found ourselves after 9-11, and Ken was a big part of this, um, basically eating the seed corn of the Reagan defense uh, buildup uh, in the uh, 1980s. Um, and from 2001 on, and um, in some sense, that period is maybe just coming to an end this week, uh, we have predominantly been involved in, in the Defense Department and in defense strategy, worrying the problem of counterterrorism um, and finding, fixing, and finishing terrorists and, and uh, terrorist groups. But today, when we looked at this as a commission, we found that the United States is now perhaps facing the most complex and challenging international security environment it's ever faced. If, if in the Cold War era, we had one major challenger, the Soviet Union, uh, with a lot of lesser included cases falling underneath that uh, bipolar challenge, uh, and if in the post-Cold War, uh, we were challenged by the problems of fragile and failing states. Today, we find ourselves facing a myriad of challenges that um, make the previous, I think, problems that we had to deal with uh, almost pale in comparison. So one, we face the rise of near two near-peer great power competitors. 
in the form of China and Russia. Um, the uh, National Defense Strategy of 2018, uh, and again, in the interim strategic guidance, the Biden administration will have to do its own national defense strategy, but in the interim strategic guidance that was issued by the Biden administration, um, the emphasis on great power competition, it was a strong continuity between the Trump uh, and the Biden administrations. Uh, everyone agrees China is the long pole in the tent, uh, and people began to become aware of the China challenge really in 2010 on when China began to build these islands, these sand uh, spits in the South China Sea and assert its sovereignty over them. Uh, but it also became clear that Russia remains a challenge after the invasion of Crimea in 2014 and the ongoing um, destabilization of Ukraine. And while China is the most important long-term threat, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that Russia, at least for the moment, uh, is the only country that presents an existential threat to the existence of the United States because of its large nuclear arsenal. Now, recent um, revelations about China digging some 200 ICBM silos in the Chinese desert uh, could suggest, it's not completely clear yet, that China aspires to become a nuclear peer of the United States and of Russia. That would be an even uh, make China an even greater challenge and a, 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 the timeline move up uh, quite a bit. But great power competition clearly is one major uh, challenge that the United States is going to be facing for some time. Second uh, uh, trend that we found is that we face regional challengers um, who either have or aspire to have nuclear weapons. Uh, obviously, North Korea uh, already has tested a nuclear weapon. Iran is creeping closer to having a nuclear weapon uh, with its violations of the uh, JCPOA, which the Trump administration walked out of in 2018. We shouldn't lose sight of the fact that there are potentially other aspirants for nuclear weapons um, and other nuclear powers that we need to worry about. I mean, in the context of what's happened this week in Afghanistan, I particularly worry about Pakistan. Pakistan has been producing enormous amounts of plutonium. Uh, they're on track to have a larger nuclear arsenal than Great Britain's in the near future. Um, but it's not completely clear that Pakistan has emerged from its fragile or failing state status. Um, and the fillip that um, Islamic extremists in Pakistan will get from the victory of the Taliban is not something uh, to be sneezed at. So. There are a number of nuclear uh, potential uh, regional challenges that we face. A third um, kind of a trend line has been this notion of conflict in the gray zone, or sometimes called uh, hybrid, hybrid warfare. And what we found in the 2018 commission, and sadly uh, events have only confirmed this, is that we have gray zones that are both regional, that is to say, areas like the Senkaku Islands, where uh, the People's Republic of China uses um, you know, militarized uh, uh, naval militia uh, or fishing fleets, uh, proxies or paramilitary forces uh, to challenge uh, the sovereignty of the Senkakus. We've seen that in the South China Sea, we've seen the use of these little green men or proxies by Russia in, in Crimea. 
Um, so we have these regional uh, areas of gray zone conflict, but we also have functional uh, gray zone conflict, which is in the area of cyber or information warfare. And there what we found, and sadly, again, this has been validated by events, is that the United States is not just in competition with Russia and China in these areas uh, and, and others as well, but we're in daily conflict. We, we're, we've got daily uh, cyber operations against our government systems, against uh, systems in, in the private sector, uh, and we've got the use not just of uh, state-controlled assets uh, like the GRU in Russia or others, but we've got um, the Internet Research Agency in Russia. We've got private hackers uh, in in China and Russia who are being used, criminal gangs that are being used against us. And of course, the idea of political warfare being waged against the United States uh, is something we've been discussing uh, for a number of years now because of Russian interference in our elections. Um, but I will tell you, if we were having this conversation in Australia, um, we really would be more focused on Chinese information operations, and the Chinese have been very active in this area as well, and in particular, over spreading misinformation and disinformation about COVID in, in Europe and in the United States. Fourth, we have the jihadist threat, which is ongoing. Sadly, there are more jihadists worldwide now uh, than there were on 9-11. Um, they're spread more widely, uh, and as I said in my earlier comments, um, the Taliban victory in Afghanistan is uh, going to be a great recruiting tool for them. They've now got the ability to claim that they've defeated two superpowers, the Soviet Union and the United States. Uh, and, and that is going to mean that uh, this threat will continue to metastasize. And uh, I believe we will have to devote more resources to it uh, than had we not quit Afghanistan in, in uh, such a messy way. Um, we also have, um, I've got two more trends that I want to get through that we, we have to face. One is the spread of new technologies that are going to revolutionize warfare or are already revolutionizing warfare. Uh, and there is a list of 10 technologies that, um, you know, Ken's job was so big when he was undersecretary of defense that uh, it was subsequently by legislation split into two. And one of his, um, one of his successors, um, Michael Griffin sent a letter to defense industry a few years ago, which listed 10 key technologies, and those are important technologies that we have to be able to be competitive in, if not dominate, and they include artificial intelligence, robotics, hypersonics, microelectronics, quantum computing, uh, directed energy, uh, space, both in the offense and defense side of it, uh, cybersecurity, uh, missile defense, and nuclear modernization. Um, and those uh, technologies, uh, some in combination, uh, are going to uh, change how uh, wars are planned and fought. And um, uh, we, we are behind in some of those technologies, candidly. Um, and we have to develop a, a way to ensure the success of our national, what the 2018 National Security Strategy called the National Security Innovation Base, uh, in order to be competitive with these two uh, challengers, particularly China. Finally, the other challenge for defense strategy that we have faced over the previous decade is budget instability and disinvestment in defense. So um, under the Budget Control Act, uh, 
we had a um, long period of time in which the defense budget um, was either flat or uh, declining. I mean, under the Budget Control Act, even though the defense budget represented 15% of federal outlays, it was assigned 50% of the cuts that took place under defense or under sequestration. If you had um, failure to reach budget um, agreements, we had a series of uh, bipartisan budget agreements um, that essentially just kept things going, but we had uh, some very serious um, inconstancy in our defense funding, and uh, there were all sorts of um, all sorts of things that went on in the defense budgeting world that made it difficult for DoD to sort of keep up with this evolving um, technological competition that I was just talking about, including relying uh, for many, many years on um, continuing resolutions rather than uh, actual defense appropriations, which precluded new starts. Uh, there was an effort to try and make up for this by uh, shoving money into the so-called OCOs. In Ken's in my day, they were defense supplemental bills, which were meant to fund uh, the ongoing operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. But all of this led to a lot of, of dysfunction in, in DOD. Um, you know, I'm frequently asked, and I'm sure people will want to, you know, know um, about this in Q&A, how is it that we spend so much more than our rivals, um, you know, and the next seven or eight countries in the world on defense, but we're not spending, you know, you're telling us we're not spending enough. Well, part of the problem is we spend 50% of our budget on personnel, healthcare, and retirement. And the healthcare part of it is like healthcare costs in the uh, economy at large, uh, eating an increasingly large share of of the budget. Uh, second, of course, our adversaries have regional responsibilities, while we have uh, global uh, responsibilities. Um, and and we spent the last twenty years fighting uh, counterterrorism rather than investing in technologies of the future. We've also allowed the Department of Defense's analytical capabilities to decay. We used to have capabilities for uh, matching force on force, uh, modeling that and seeing how we would do against putative adversaries like China and Russia. Those capabilities have significantly uh, decayed. And we haven't been developing any new concepts for how we will fight if we have to against Russia and China. This is an increasing problem because the American way of war was to allow to take the Gulf War, for instance, in back in 1990, as an example. Uh, the, the supposition of most of our war plans is the adversary strikes and makes a, a, is some kind of a gain or advance, like Saddam Hussein taking Kuwait, and then we build an iron mountain of troops and equipment over time uh, by air and sea, uh, and then we um, you know, retake the, the territory that's been lost. Uh, China and Russia have watched this for some time, and they've developed an antidote to that. And it's commonly referred to in the defense world as A2AD, which means anti-access area denial capabilities. Both Russia, particularly China, but both uh, Russia and China have developed these capabilities. Uh, that make it difficult for us to operate that way. They make it, uh, our assumptions have always been that we'll have un, unmolested access 
to uh, air and see points of departure uh, and entry to the theater. And we can no longer uh, count on that. Um, yet we haven't really come up with a way uh, to um, think about fighting or describe how we would fight that um, uh, that meets that challenge. Uh, and the result of that is that our ability to deter Russia and China has been slowly ebbing and declining uh, over the over the years. Well, reorienting the Department of Defense away from what it's been doing for the last 20 years, uh, which is fighting terrorists and engaging in great power competition is going to be an enormous, enormous challenge. Uh, we came up with some new strategic concepts uh, in the light of um, uh, Russian, Russia's nuclear buildup uh, in the Cold War, the Soviet nuclear buildup in the Cold War. Uh, and we were able to use new technologies uh, developed by some of Ken's predecessors in his job, um, particularly stealth and precision guided munitions in what was called the second offset strategy to underpin a concept called airland battle that indicated we would attack Soviet forces in the rear. We wouldn't wait for them to roll all the way to the Atlantic coast. We would attack them in the rear with precision munitions and information dominance. And uh, it, was, uh, it was those developments that led the Russians to theorize about a revolution in military affairs that ultimately um, led them to invest so much in defense that they bankrupted themselves. We don't have a similar effort to develop new defense concepts right now. Uh, and we need to, I would say, supercharge, supercharge that. The, the national defense strategy of 2018 and the Biden interim strategic guidance, as I said, has prioritized China for good reason. Um, but where we are now, uh, going back to where I began, is we have extensive commitments to treaty allies in Europe uh, and in Asia and special relations that we have with people in the Middle East, uh, but we don't have the resources to actually uh, execute all those commitments. So we are dangerously out of balance. Um, it's one reason why the commission that I co-chaired recommended that to execute the 2018 strategy and the guidance that um, the Biden administration is operating under now, they may have different guidance later, uh, would require something like three to 5% uh, real growth in, in defense budget. At the time that we proposed that, that seemed uh, like a lot of money, but uh, given the amounts of money that we have been uh, talking about and have approved uh, for expenditure, uh, $1.1 trillion um, infrastructure package and the $3.5 trillion package in the offing, um, that amount of money actually seems uh, much less um, uh, daunting than it, it might have in the past. What are the consequences if we don't uh, in fact, bring our commitments and the resources devoted to them into some kind of balance. We actually looked at that in the commission and we decided to uh, sketch out some vignettes. Um, and I, I'll share them with you. Um, Doug, if you could put the slides up. We did these uh, vignettes in um, in 2018 and, and they, they appear uh, in the slides that you're looking at now, 
uh, just as they did. The only thing I've updated is the dates because we had some of them set uh, to go off in 2019 or 2020, and those dates have already passed. But so one of the ones I'm most worried about is Taiwan. Uh, I mentioned the um, the China Global Times editorial about Taiwan. Um, you hear a lot more saber rattling from uh, the People's Republic about Taiwan. And right now, um, if we ended up in a conflict over Taiwan, if China made the decision that uh, they wanted to prevent Taiwan from declaring independence, or they just wanted by a certain date to incorporate Taiwan as part of one China, um, they could conduct a massive uh, set of attacks using the um, land attack missile capabilities and holding us at bay with their um, uh, long range uh, anti-ship ballistic missiles uh, and make it extremely difficult for the US to operate. And one thing that Americans have become used to uh, in terms of Desert Storm and operation during freedom and Iraqi freedom is very quick American combat victories when major combat is going on, as opposed to the counterinsurgency part, which is more complicated. But uh, the idea of losing a major conflict, I think, is sort of not one that um, Americans have really come to grips with. So Taiwan is, is certainly one. Um, can we uh, go, to, go to the next slide, if you would, Doug? Uh, North Korea. Um, we could easily find ourselves in a, a conflict with North Korea and the potential for nuclear escalation as North Korea builds its nuclear arsenal, not only in number, but in the diversity of its delivery systems. I mean, the North Koreans are building a, an arsenal now that uh, has not only long range ICBMs, but they're also clearly trying to develop submarine launched ballistic missiles. The potential for a conflict that would um, uh, raise the risk of nuclear escalation or defeat uh, is very, very real. Um, uh, of course, this came up several times, at least early in the Trump administration, uh, but it's still out there. Uh, and it's one we have to, I think, uh, be concerned about. Uh, by the way, uh, if we just had a conflict that was restricted to conventional munitions, uh, the prospects uh, would not be very good because the North Koreans have enormous number of uh, artillery tubes pointed at Seoul, Korea, um, and have threatened to turn it into a ring of fire. Um, the estimates of casualties are quite high, including American casualties, because we've got a lot of uh, not only American uh, troops, but dependents and American citizens living in South Korea. So that's a, a second uh, conflict to worry about that we could either face nuclear escalation or lose. The third, um, Russia, um, you know, we, um, we, we talk in, in this one about a, um, a potential conflict that, um, you know, gets ignited because of the uh, Balkans and, and uh, escalates from there. Um, the Belarus uh, conflict um, or the Belarus uh, crisis that um, has emerged and Belarus's use of air piracy as a uh, and kidnapping as a sort of state instrument um, is one that could also lead to a conflict. And you see 
just in the press in recent days, the uh, uh, foreign minister of Latvia expressing concern about Belarus's weaponization of um, migration. Uh, and that may increase as we start to get Afghan refugees pouring through um, to use against the Baltic states uh, and keep the pressure on. So uh, that's a, a Russian uh, potential case. Um, I mentioned that some of the concern about China as a rising adversary came from the um, uh, activities in the South China Sea in 2010. Uh, but so much uh, energy flows uh, through the South China Sea, as you see in this slide, 14% of our trade passing through that, um, that the potential for a uh, loss of access or a military conflict that arises from that is not insubstantial. And then finally, uh, cyber attacks, and this is all too real because we've been going through this uh, throughout last year and the spring with the solar winds um, cyber attack, but also the Colonial Pipeline and the um, the, the food uh, food companies that have been attacked. Um, President Biden, uh, at his summit meeting with uh, President Putin, uh, gave him a list of 16 areas of American critical infrastructure that the Russians need to keep their hands off of with the cyber, um, in the cyber game. Um, it's not yet clear to me whether that deterrence message was received and whether that will in fact deter Russia. Uh, there's a, a danger that in fact, uh, that kind of message will be interpreted by Putin as, I, if I keep my hands off these 16 things, I can attack everything else. Um, and so we'll have to, We'll have to see about uh, whether whether that enhances enhances our deterrent. Um, as I as I said about um, the commission report, we recommended a three to five percent annual increase. The Trump budgets uh, just barely got over the three percent mark. President Trump liked to brag that he had rebuilt the U.S. military. I think it's fair to say that the Trump budgets bought back a little bit of the readiness we had lost. Uh, because of the defense uh, cuts that took place under the Budget Control Act, but they weren't sufficient to make the kinds of investments in future capabilities um, that uh, we are going to need. This year's uh, budget under the Trump budget was going to be flat to slight, slightly declining. The Biden budget was, in fact, a decline. Um, and interestingly, though, the Senate Armed Services Committee, when it marked up the National Defense Authorization Act, by a vote of 24 to one, plussed up that budget by about $25 billion, which got you just north of that 3% uh, bar that we had set in, in our report. But I think it's clear that money alone will not be enough. It's, it's necessary, but money alone will not be enough to meet the kinds of defense challenges that I've been outlining. Uh, we're gonna need future capabilities that we can invest in now. We're going to need new concepts for how to employ them. Um, and uh, we need to be able to enhance our ability to deter in the short run, uh, both in Europe and in Asia. And in the end of the day, all of this discussion of defense strategy is about deterrence. None of us wants to build a defense strategy to actually fight a war. 
Uh, the point is to be able to make yourself such a challenging target for your adversaries that you never have to go to war. Um, and that's the art, I think, of crafting a national defense strategy. And I think I've probably gone on a little bit too long. So let me stop there, Ken, and open it uh, up to you with my observation that the best defense strategy is one that deters, not you know one that uh, provokes a war. Fantastic. Thanks, Eric. Um, it's a huge topic and you did a nice job of, of kind of foc focusing is in on the transition from history to today and the challenges that we have lying ahead. You know, that, that question of deterrence, um, it was one thing to deter in a kind of a bipolar contest where the two parties um, had very different interests in a very similar structure. And they built over time a discussion about what it meant to deter each other. Um, how do you think about deterrence in a multi-party a multi world with so many different natures of interests and risks at play? It's a great question. Um, there, there are several, I think, problems with sort of deterrence. And by the way, it's an active discussion, as you know, Ken, in the Department of Defense now. Uh, Secretary uh, Austin has talked about uh, the importance of what he calls integrated deterrence, which is, you know, trying to figure out how you use not just nuclear weapons, but all the military instruments and all the instruments of national power, not just military, but including uh, intelligence, economic uh, diplomacy, etc., in order to deter. So there are a couple of things I would observe, uh, particularly with regard to nuclear deterrence, but it, it goes more broadly than just nuclear, because obviously, um, you know, there's nuclear deterrence and there's conventional deterrence. And first, the first problem with deterrence is, and I, the, a, a classic problem that we have as Americans, is uh, you have to remember that what deters is not what you think deters it's what your adversary thinks deters and you never know that uh, with any precision i mean you can you can have intelligence and you can you know read their documents to the degree that they state things in public about what you know what they value and what you can hold at risk but in the end of the day you know it's a very um it's a very uncertain process and um, we Americans tend to think um, that, you know, if it would deter us, it would deter them. And, you know, that's how we got you know, mutual, so-called mutual assured destruction or MAD. That, that came out of Secretary McNamara's um, effort to quantify when he established the PPBS, the Planning Programming Budgeting System in the Pentagon, which we still suffer under. Um, the uh, the notion that you know there there had to be you know how much was enough was the famous question he asked to deter in nuclear weapons and he first concluded that it was um, sixty percent of the population and seventy five percent of of industry and then they changed the numbers but of course that was based on what we thought would you know what would deter a good American but it wasn't necessarily what would deter Russians who had you know lost easily twenty million people in in World War II, and so it was a different set of calculations for the for the Russians. So that's 
problem number one. Problem number two is there's something we tend to call general deterrence, which is, or strategic deterrence, which is uh, how do we prevent the Russians or now increasingly the Chinese from you know deciding that they want to attack the United States with nuclear weapons? Well, that's pretty not easy, but it's relatively easier uh, to do. We we've had for years a doctrine of uh, second strike retaliatory capability, which is we could ride out a strike by the Soviets slash Russians uh, or the Chinese uh, and still have enough to inflict enormous punishment on them uh, with nuclear weapons so that they would be deterred from attacking us. What's less easy to do is uh, to engage in what, what we call extended deterrence, which is to deter attacks on our allies. And when you think about the Cold War, almost every major crisis of the Cold War was a function of uh, extended deterrence, whether it was the Berlin crisis um, in the late 1950s or early 1960s, uh, the, the um, Kamoy and Matsu crises of the 1950s, um, or the Cuban Missile Crisis. These were all crises of extended deterrence. They weren't crises of whether the United States could deter the Soviet Union from attacking it, but whether it could deter them from attacking its allies or parts, you know, taking parts of its allies slice by slice. Um, and uh, today, I think what we're seeing is uh, essentially an attack on extended deterrence by both Russia and China. You see that in Chinese messaging when the Chinese are telling the Taiwanese and the Hong Kong population, don't count on the Americans. That's really a, a you know an attack on a, a extended deterrence. It won't be long before they're telling the Japanese and the Republic of Korea, you know, don't count on the Americans. They're not going to be there to defend you. Uh, and the Russians, of course, echo uh, that as well with our Baltic allies, for instance. Um, and so maintaining these, um, you know, the credibility of our extended deterrent is going to be uh, an issue. And, and it's, you, you can see that now in the reaction on Afghanistan, because it's a, it's a, it, it calls into question our willingness to carry out other commitments. Uh, this is what I meant when I said earlier, there's the indivisibility of, of commitments. Uh, I had an experience, I'm not sure if you did, but when President Obama walked away from his own red line with regard to Syrian chemical weapons in 2013, I was hearing nonstop from my former Japanese and Korean colleagues because they thought that there was an implication there about the US willingness to meet its, you know, defense commitments. The president of the United States said this, you know, and and then walked away from it. Um, and just to be bipartisan about it, you know, we did the same thing in Bush 43. You know, President um, Bush said that um, in um, October of 2006, when North Korea tested a nuclear weapon, um, he said, if we catch them providing uh, nuclear weapons or nuclear technology to either terrorists or known state sponsor of terrorism, you know, we, we will impose very serious consequences on them. A year later, we caught the North Koreans building uh, a doppelganger of their young beyond nuclear reactor in the Syrian desert, not connected in any way to the Syrian electrical grid. Um, and uh, almost certainly part of a, a Syrian nuclear weapons program. 
Um, and yet, we, in the end of the day, we stood by and did nothing. We let the Israelis take care of it. Yes, one has to be careful about one of what one establishes as the red line and then uh, your willingness to, to live up to it. Uh, thanks to the um, to the audience. They've got a lot of interesting questions. Uh, naturally, several of them about Afghanistan um, and uh, some pretty thoughtful ones. Um, you know, successive presidents uh, have talked about ending the long wars, right? Um, Obama, Trump, Biden, um, all campaigned on it, all made it a big part of their stated policy. Um, but yet, it was so hard to enact over time. How, you know, a lot of this will be played out in the hindsight of, of history as, as people uh, tear it apart and try to understand it, but what might have some of the elements been in affecting a more um, positive transaction or a more positive um, ending of the Afghanistan war? or Afghanistan uh, um, effort, how might we have done it differently? Yeah, I, well, I, I suspect we're going to have a number of, you know, retrospective looks at, you know, what, what we did in Afghanistan uh, over 20 years. I, I think part of the issue here I think is people's memories are somewhat short and people don't remember what it felt like on September 12th, 2011, after 3000 of our countrymen had been killed by terrorists who were plotting, you know, their attacks from Afghanistan and the sanctuary they had there. Um, you know, uh, you'll remember, Ken, that uh, when we started the military action uh, on October 7th in, in 2001, General Abizade, who was then the deputy commander in CENTCOM, as we began the pummeling of the Taliban positions, said, we're bombing Afghanistan forward into the Stone Age. I mean, this was, of course, a, uh, a, a play on um, Curtis LeMay's comments about Vietnam, that we were going to bomb Vietnam back into the Stone Age. But John's comment, I think, captured a, a important truth about Afghanistan which was, this was one of the poorest countries on earth. And to give you just some sense of the scale, the per capita GDP in Afghanistan today, after 20 years of effort to build the Afghan economy is something like uh, six or $700 a person. The per capita income in Haiti, which is the poorest country in our hemisphere, which tragically has just suffered you know, another horrible you know, earthquake and natural disaster, you know, on top of everything else that Haiti has suffered, including the assassination of its president, the per capita income of Haiti is $1,200 a year. It's more than twice what it is in Afghanistan. This was a desperately poor society. I, I remember going over and being briefed on our efforts to build the Afghan military, and 90% of the recruits uh, at the beginning of our effort, were illiterate. You know, um, and we were asking our guys, you know, who were doing the train assist mission, training the Afghan military forces, essentially to teach them how to read and write. Um, you know, they don't teach people how to do that at Fort Kearney. Um, so we, we were not, 
this goes back to my earlier point about how we do, you know, security assistance. So the, the point again, to go back to what I said earlier, we taught them how to fight the way we fight. And they're not capable of executing some of those things without our support. What I think would have made more sense than just pulling out totally was figuring out how we could keep a de minimis presence there to help them with the mission planning, to help them with ISR, the intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance, to give them an advantage over the Taliban, um, and to um, provide the logistical support to keep the aircraft flying and the um, and the uh, you know uh, trucks and vehicles moving. Um, and we could have done that at, a, I think, a fairly low level and sustained it over a period of time. Now, you know, I've had people tell me, well, you know, Eric, that's all fine and good, but we were spending $50 billion a year. I'm not, I mean, that number has come down over the last few years. It's less than that. But, but let's say it's $50 billion a year. The cost of 9-11, when you total it all out, was $3.3 trillion. So, you know, at 50 billion a year for 20 years, I'm, I'm ready to pay that cost if that's what it is to keep us from being attacked that way again. Um, we'll see how, you know, how soon it is before we have the next attack on the homeland. I hope it's, you know, I hope it never happens again. But um, I, there's going to be a real danger now with us out that uh, we're going to be blind uh, to a lot of what's going on. And so I, I think there were ways to execute the withdrawal differently. I mean, President Biden has every right. He campaigned on it. It's his right to make that decision. I disagree with it, but it's his right. Where I differ, you know, with President Biden and what he said in his speech today and what his colleagues have said is, you know, it's clear they didn't prepare for every eventuality. You know, you, you don't plan to withdraw 2,500 troops and then reinsert 6,000. That's not anybody's in anybody's plan, at least in the Pentagon that you and I worked in. Um, and so I think um, there, there were better ways to do this. And I think there were a lot of other second and third order consequences that were not factored into this. Like, where are we going to, they keep talking about over the horizon terrorist overwatch. Great. Where? From where? I mean, if we fly out of the UAE or gutter, you know, that's six hour flight and you got to refuel. So that's going to be pretty expensive. And it's also going to, you know, you're going to have your loiter time is going to be short. You're not going to be able to do the kinds of things that we've done over the last 20 years. It's just going to be a real decrement in our counterterrorism capability. And we should be just honest and clear eyed about it. So interesting question came up uh, in several um different parts, uh, but, but at its heart is, how do we learn from mistakes in the national security enterprise, right? How do we, how do we be clear-eyed and objective uh, to ourselves uh, and then think it through and internalize it and change our behavior going forward? We do it every once in a while, um, but it's hard. Talk a little bit about that. It's a great question again, and it's, um, yes, we do it every once in a while, but, you know, we don't do it very well, you know, and we, um, 
And we, and as I said, we keep stumbling over some of the same problems. I mean, I think a lot of the things we did wrong with training the Afghan army are exactly the same things we did wrong with, uh, you know, training the uh, Vietnamese army in, in, in the 70s. Um, and it's not like smart people didn't know that. I mean, Dave Petraeus wrote his doctoral dissertation on, you know, how we did, you know, what we did with um, the Vietnamese army in, in, um, in the counterinsurgency realm. So it's not like people weren't aware of this or H.R. McMaster who'd written his doctoral dissertation on, you know, how the Joint Chiefs dealt with, with uh, Lyndon Johnson during the Vietnam War. Look, it's very hard, first of all, because, you know, policymaking, you know, when we teach it in policy schools and I teach in a policy school, you know, we tend to make it this very abstract thing. You know, there are these documents, these national security documents, strategy documents, etc. But as as you know, well, um, you know, this is human beings, you know, at work, it's like any other kind of human enterprise. Uh, and you've got people's egos involved, you've got people who are worried about, you know, they're not worried about the reputational consequence to the United States of America, necessarily, they're worried about the reputational consequence to them and what their next job is going to be. And whether they're going to go, get to go out and sit on a corporate board at some point or what have you. And um, so it, it is very, very hard once a policy is in place um, to make adjustments. I mean, uh, General Eisenhower, who probably of any president, you know, knew more about the strategy making process and the staffing process of any of them, uh, said that, you know, strategy was, you know, uh, great. It's good to have a strategy, but you know, you, you, you have to be prepared to adjust, you know, or as, um, or as Mike Tyson says, everybody's got a strategy until they get hit up on the side of head. Um, you know, you, you've got to be able to uh, adjust. And I think we did make an adjustment in Iraq, um, you know, uh, in 19 or in 2007 with the, with the surge, which I think was actually quite uh, successful for a short time. I think, unfortunately, it got undone by by our early exit in 2011. I mean, that's part of the problem. You know, President Biden said, and it's a fair comment today, which is when is the right time to leave? It's very hard to know when the right time, you know, to leave is. Um, but hopefully you don't want to leave when you get into these situations and, and leave behind what we're now leaving behind in Afghanistan. I, I think we ended up in a much better place in Iraq even though we had to go back in, you know, then we had to, then, then we've ended up in, in Afghanistan. And I hope, by the way, I hope we learn the right lesson from that. Because there's some people who say, yeah, let's get everybody out of Syria and Iraq too. And, and I hope we don't do that because I think that would be a very big mistake. Shift gears for a little bit. Um, a topic uh, you and I and others have had to deal with, uh, confirmation by the U.S. Senate. Uh -huh. um, that process, which everybody, uh, every student of, steps back and says, um, the Senate by constitution has a right to provide its advice and consent to the president on the key uh, positions that the president wants. Um, but increasingly, regardless of, regardless of who the president is, um, and almost regardless of the Senate structure, frankly, it's been harder and harder to get um, your team in office. Um, we've got 
you know, handfuls of the 60 uh, Senate confirmed uh, people in the Department of Defense and even worse on the diplomatic side, right? Uh, the president's gotten very few of his uh, uh, recommended or his, his um, ambassadors through the confirmation process. How does, how, how do you think about, um, forget reforming the process? That, that's a much bigger question, much harder, but, but, but how do you think about getting your, as an administration, getting your trust um, and expertise in the field so that you get the connection between um, people you trust, people who know, and the policymakers back in Washington? How, does, how, how, how do you think about that as a former career ambassador who's also worked on the political side? Yeah. So, I mean, look, it's a terrible process. Um, but as you say, it's enshrined in our Constitution. Um, I worry that it's gotten so painful. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's never been a, a cakewalk. And, and every administration has nominations that blow up you know, for, for one reason or another. And, and Ken, as you know, having gone through the process, every, it's sort of like when you prepare your paperwork for confirmation, it's like going through an archeological dig. You know, you start getting questions that have to do not with your job or your background, but with the last failed nominee, you know? Uh, did you have a nanny who you didn't pay social security tax for? You know, have you ever committed adultery? Uh, you know, uh, have you yelled at your staff and made them cry? I mean, you know, it, with each failed nominee, there's some new set of uh, strainer that you have to go through to kind of, you know, get through the process. And I worry that the process is getting to the point. I mean, we've seen it in, in you know, other administrations and in this administration. You know, some people are saying, I, I'm sorry, I'm just not willing to go through this, you know, uh, I'm not willing to have a financial proctological exam of all my finances. I, I'm not willing to, you know, to, to put my life on hold. I mean, I know of one nominee in the previous administration who was on hold for, oh God, I don't know how long, uh, over a year and finally gave up and said, okay, I'm done. So we're gonna lose a lot of, you know, a lot of people. My position on the board of directors of the U.S. Institute of Peace, actually Senate confirmed. It took me 18 months to get confirmed. I'd already been confirmed by the Senate three times for real jobs that I got paid for. You know? But for this volunteer job that I don't get paid for, it took 18 months to, to get confirmed. I mean, it's crazy. Um, you know, I, I know that um, senators on both sides of the aisle feel that um, that the you know nomination process is one of the few ways they can get an administration's attention. And so the worst part of this is, look, there's some nominations, and we've seen some of this in the Biden administration, where people have you know run into problems because of you know tweeting on you know uh, tweets that they've put on Twitter. And you know I tell people, and not that I'm looking to get a Senate confirmed job again because I have no desire for one, but but, you know, I'm not on Twitter, I'm not on any social media, you know, and, and more people ought to get off social media, I think, because, you know, if you want to be in government, and you want to have a Senate confirmed job, you can bet they're going to comb through your tweets, and find every, you know, stupid half-assed idea that you had that you decided you wanted to share with the rest of the world. Um, and, and that, you know, that's, 
been one set of problems. But the other problem we have is that some people get held up for something that is either totally tangential. I mean, I was, as you know, I was held for eight or nine months by the then uh, ranking member of the Armed Services Committee, uh, the late Carl Levin, had nothing to do with me. Senator Levin told me he liked me, but had to do with my predecessor, who he didn't like. You know, and but I, I, I was in no position to actually give him what it was he wanted. Um, and it took nine months and it was it's it's debilitating. It makes it difficult for you to do your job while you're waiting to be confirmed. Um, it And it makes it harder for the administration. And I've seen other examples of this. I mean, there's a recent example of a, a Defense Department assistant secretary who was just confirmed, but who was held up for uh, a while because one member of the Senate didn't like the one answer that she had given in her confirmation hearing about a policy matter. You know, I mean, really? Are we, we going to hold things up for that? I mean, look, I think my general going in presumption is whoever gets elected president ought to have the team of their choice and get their nominees ought to have a presumption of confirmation by the Senate unless there's moral turpitude, criminality, or you know, behavior that really suggests unfitness to hold the position they're in. And that could be, you know, revealed in their tweets. I, I mean, that's not illegitimate, but it ought to be one of those things and not, oh, I don't agree with the administration's policy on on this, that, or the other thing. Senator Cruz is holding up everybody in the State Department over Nord Stream. I agree with him about Nord Stream. I think the administration's made a terrible mistake by not trying to shut down the Nord Stream pipeline and by waiving the sanctions. But does that mean they should hold up everybody who's being confirmed for the State Department? I think it's cutting off your nose to spite your face. Uh, thank you. Uh, question, because I bet a lot of people don't uh, in the audience don't know. What is the Institute of Peace and, 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 and what's its role? Um, so the U.S. Institute of Peace was set up uh, by uh, law because uh, at the time in the 1980s, uh, a lot of people thought we had military academies, but we didn't have anything that, you know, it was originally going to be a peace academy, but it ended up being a, an institute for peace. Uh, and USIP has done a variety of things, but in particular, they've done a lot of stuff over the last 20 years that has been enormously helpful to our um, efforts in both at Iraq and Afghanistan, but also elsewhere in places like Libya, Colombia, uh, places that are uh, uh, facing conflicts, and essentially these are programs to have uh, to help with conflict management, conflict prevention, uh, so that we don't end up having, uh, you know, situations that escalate into warfare. It's uh, local reconciliation efforts, it's local mediation efforts, it's uh, de-radicalization efforts. Uh, we've got currently we've got a number of people in Kabul. I hope we can get them out. Um, who've been involved in a lot of programs with, uh, you know, local Afghan authorities to help deal with corruption and deal with other, you know, other issues in, in, um, in the U.S., uh, in the, in the um, Afghan circumstance that are beneficial to the U.S. interest. It's, you know, uh, our budget's about 35 million appropriated U.S. dollars. Sometimes it goes a little higher than that, but I, I think if you talk to military commanders where we've been involved, they will tell you that it's been a force multiplier. Helped, helped the United States overall and helped um, 
in some areas prevent conflicts or in some areas tamp them down. I mean, they, we paid a not insignificant role in some of the success of the surge in dealing with local conflicts in Iraq, for instance. Great, thank you. What, switch gears again, um, what would be the downside of US becoming a regional power as opposed to a global power? Yeah, that's a good, interesting, it's a good question. And it's really essentially the debate we're having now. Uh, I mean, look, the United States for, um, you know, um, most of its history before World War One was in the was in essence a regional power, um, and uh, you know, in in the age of sail, uh, it made sense in some ways for the United States to be a regional power. Um, we we had at that time what uh, one of my uh, history professors at Yale. You mentioned my my misspent youth in, in academia. Um, C. Van Woodward, who was the president of the American Historical Association, gave a presidential address in 1960 in which he said the United States had benefited from free security for most of its history because we've been separated from the rest of the world by two very large oceans. Um, and uh, some people took issue with that and pointed out that actually uh, for a lot of that time we were protected by the Royal Navy, even though we didn't you know, pay them, but they took it upon themselves to preserve the freedom of the seas, which therefore allowed the U.S. to sort of hide behind um, Great Britain's skirts a little bit. But his general point was right, I think, in terms of how Americans think about security uh, or thought about it. But in a, you know, uh, once the age of sail gave way to the age of steam and then transoceanic navies and, um, and air power, um, and intercontinental ballistic missiles. I think the idea that we could only be, you know, that we could be a regional power, I, I think um, kind of went away. Uh, I think it's very hard for us to just be a regional power. Um, part of the issue is the system that we created that I talked about, the international order with the various international economic institutions and the system of alliances, requires somebody to manage it. And, you know, Britain was able to give up its position of global dominance in the early 20th century because they could share the burden with us, partially. Um, but we don't have anybody we can hand off to. I, I don't think, if you think about uh, how the uh, People's Republic of China responded to a tweet by the general manager of the Houston Rockets about Hong Kong uh, a year or two ago. A world run by the People's Republic of China would be like that, which is, oh, you tweet about Hong Kong? Well, all the Houston Rockets merchandise is going off the shelves in China and you're gonna lose a ton of money. So don't insult you know, the billion people of China by you know, your tweet. That's the kind of world we'll live in if the Chinese run it. And I don't think we want that. And I don't think most people in the rest of the world want that either. Different ship. Uh, what do we learn from the Israelis and their defense philosophies? Um, you know, they're, they're, very, they're very effective at combining their diplomatic and defense capabilities, but they have a much different case than ours. But what do we learn by their ability to think about concepts and 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 uh, and, uh, and build capabilities? 
Well, one capability that they've developed, which we um, we've contributed to because we helped pay for it, was uh, Iron Dome and David Sling. Uh, and because they're sitting in the midst of you know uh, an area that's bristling full of rockets and missiles, and they've got a neighbor in the north, uh, a non-state actor, Hezbollah, that's got over a hundred thousand rockets and missiles in its arsenal. It's got the cap the capability of several states worth of you know missile and and rocket arsenals what they've done is essentially developed an algorithm that allows them you know to defend those missiles that are coming towards populated areas and let the ones that are just going to fall into the water or into the desert uh just go unmolested now that's great for conventional missiles it's not quite good enough for nuclear because mm -hmm. missile defense needs to you know be you know um it needs to be perfect when it comes to nuclear or, or close to it. Um, but I mean, I think obviously there are things we can learn from them, you know, just scientifically. I mean, uh, Israel is an incredibly advanced country, startup nation. They've got a lot of high tech. There's a lot to be learned. And there's a lot to be gained, I think, from partnerships between particularly the UAE and Israel that are being fostered by the Abraham Accords that uh, President uh, Trump's administration reached uh, among Israel, the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, Sudan's less, I think, important. But um, so there's a lot, I think, to be gained there, and not the least being that uh, the UAE has a lot of money um, at its disposal. Israel's got a lot of scientific talent. I think the next step, uh, going back to those key you know, defense capabilities we were talking about earlier, uh, you know, future capabilities and technologies to invest in. I think um, the Israelis, even with all the strides they've made with Iron Dome and, and David Sling, which have um, diminished the cost per shot of their missile defense. Um, but, you know, no matter how much you diminish the cost, missile defense, as we see with what Hezbollah has done, puts you on the, you know, or conventional missile defense, puts you on the wrong side of a cost imposition curve. It's a lot easier for them to proliferate the next generation of Al-Fajr missiles that, you know, are going to have longer range and, you know, bigger warheads than, than you know, you can, it's going to be cheaper for them to do that than for you to come up with a, another interceptor to knock it down. So directed energy is obviously the place that we have to go, they have to go and we have to go. They could be, I think, the canaries in the coal mine for the next kind of generation of missile defense with UAE money funding Israeli research on DE. I mean, we're already deploying some DE systems, as you know, on our ships, whether it's high-powered uh, microwaves or, or lasers. Um, but I think that's ultimately the way to get out of the cost imposition trap on missile defense. And we're going to need it because uh, you know, the missile threat is just proliferating like crazy around the world. So one last one, uh, and thank, thanks again to the uh, audience for coming up with some great questions. Um, as we think about the changing nature of national security, uh, one of the things you've seen multiple times coming out of um, looks at uh, national strategy and um, and defense strategy is the implications of global climate change um, and trying to understand what they are, trying to, to, to draw them in 
Um, it's become quite politicized. Uh, and there's a separate challenge of how do you think about national security without always getting swung back and forth in the current debates and, and politics. But, but looking in particular at global climate change, you know, what's that mean for a national strategy, a defense strategy, and, and, and how does the Department of Defense think about it, look at it, make a difference in it? Well, DOD has been trying to make a difference for a while, and it's trying to reduce its carbon footprint. There's been a lot of effort. Secretary Carter actually uh, put a lot of effort into that when he was Secretary of Defense, <clears throat> and I think that's all to the good. I mean, the biggest, uh, you know, uh, and climate, by the way, I should add, um, one of the differences between the um, uh, Trump national security strategy and national defense strategy and the Biden interim strategic guidance is um, very much an emphasis by the Biden folks on climate and, and the impacts of climate change. Having said that, uh, it's never very clear exactly how it, you know, how it fits in. One very direct way, I mean, you know, obviously we'd all be better off if, if you know, we moved it more in the direction of renewable energy and, you know, relied less on, um, uh, on uh, fossil fuels, although fossil fuels are going to play a role for quite some time to come. I think we have to be realistic about that as well. Um, also, I think nuclear is going to have to be a part of this solution to this, you know, and that there's some uncomfortable problems with, you know, waste removal and storage, et cetera, that come with nuclear. But I think Germany is about, you know, about having banned nuclear, but also having signed on to the Paris Accords. And the Germans are about to discover, you know, that, you know, you got to, there's something's got to give there. You know, the French already have pretty much a plutonium economy, as do the uh, Japanese, so they're in better shape. Um, Germans will, I think, be uh, facing some acute challenges, which is one reason why the Greens are doing so well politically in Germany. Um, the biggest thing I see that you know affects DOD, Ken, is the fact that climate change um, is doing two things. First, it's driving people to migrate more to alluvial floodplains, um, and it's creating more catastrophic weather events that tend to hit those, you know, megalopolises that have been created by that migration. And uh, we in DOD, uh, when, when I say we in DOD, uh, you know, old habits die hard. But, but in DOD, obviously, we have the kind of resident uh, capabilities for planning and for disaster relief um, that mean those resources are going to get drawn on more often. Um, now, People complain about that from time to time because it uh, obviously takes away from you know the defense mission. But you know I mentioned at the outset that one of the things that's been part of our strategy for you know national strategy for a long time is when people are run into disasters, Americans help. That's just you know it's part of our DNA. Um, so it's going to be an ongoing mission. Um, you know we have the mercy, we have the hope, we've got certain assets that can be deployed when these things happen, uh, and we should deploy them. But I think it's going. It means that we're going to have you know those mission sets more and more in the future before because of climate change. That's going to be I think the most direct impact on defense strategy and making sure we have those assets available. Great, thank you.
Thank you, Eric. Thank you for taking the time to join us at the seminar Steamboat. We really appreciate your uh, insights. Um, as always, you know, we, we lead these tough conversations with as many questions as we have answers, but, but the hope is that we at least try to, or our, our hope is that we inform the public policy debate and try to bring in uh, views of that policy that help you interpret what's going on and, and, and hopefully in time make you a better citizen. So Eric, we really appreciate your time with us. Uh, to the audience, thank you very much for tuning in uh, and for asking such great questions. Um, have a great evening and uh, thank you all. Thanks, Ken. This has been a special presentation of Seminars at Steamboat. For more information about the seminars, visit seminarsatsteamboat.org. The podcast was produced by Ryan Thompson for KUNC. Special thanks to Jenny Lay, Doug Usher, and the Steamboat Pilot and Today for their support. Find information on future seminars at seminarsatsteamboat.org. The music is When I'm With You by Scott Holmes. Find more of his work at scottholmesmusic.com. This is KUNC.